We need a global policeman, and the United States is the only reliable and desirable candidate for that job. I think his remarks are divisive, stupid and wrong, and I think if he came to visit our country, I think he'd unite us all against him. Donald Trump is a leader. He will reassert America's position as the nation with the best values to lead the world. When you have the nuclear codes at your fingertips, you can't have a thin skin or a tendency to lash out. You need to be steady and measured and well-informed. If I was an American citizen, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton if you paid me. I have great faith in the American people. Look forward to working with whoever gets elected in November. Hello and welcome to the global election on Monocle 24. I'm Steve Bloomfield. When Barack Obama won the 2008 presidential election, he promised to pull troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan. We were entering, he hoped, a period where America would step back from the Middle East, ending a decade of wars, one of them at least a war of choice, that had caused untold damage. Early on in his administration, Obama travelled to Cairo to deliver a speech called A New Beginning that outlined the relationship he hoped the US would have with the Arab world. He had to tread carefully. As much as he wanted to talk about democracy, the speech took place in a military dictatorship, an American ally no less, which received more than a billion dollars of American military aid every year. But it was an attempt to show a change in attitude and in policy to a region where American influence was viewed by many as unhelpful. Seven years on, much has changed, but little of it is positive. Yes, Mubarak, Gaddafi, Ben Ali have all gone. Yes, there have been revolutions, but these have been followed by counter-revolutions. War is raging in Yemen, peaceful protests have been quashed in Bahrain, and then there is Syria, a slow-motion, man-made disaster taking place before our eyes that no one seems prepared to stop. Throughout all this, the US has been a major player, but arguably a confused major player, involved one minute, silent the next, backing democracy one day, a dictator the next. The next US president, whoever he or she may be, will be faced by a new set of problems and can expect less goodwill from the hundreds of millions of citizens from that region who still look to America for leadership. Welcome to the global election. Throughout this series, we've looked at the impact the US has on the rest of the world, from Europe to China, from terrorism to the economy. And they've all been important. They will all be affected by whoever ends up as the next American president. But there is one part of the world that will be looking on more anxiously than any other, and that's the Middle East. Now, there is absolutely no way in a 20-odd minute programme that we can try to analyse what the election of Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump will mean for every nation in the region. The issues that affect Morocco are very different from those that affect Yemen. But we can look at some of the fundamental issues that affect the region, and we can discuss some of the big issues the next president is likely to be faced with. In a moment, I'll be joined by Alina Khatib, who's the head of the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House, and by Bill Law, who used to be the BBC's Middle East analyst. But first, here's Sir William Patey, who was the UK's ambassador to Iraq, Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia. So, William Patey, thank you very much for joining us today. Do you think that following the Arab Spring and everything that happened in the five years after that, America really knows what it wants in the Middle East? Well, I mean, whether it knows what it wants or not, its actions are such that they have been playing a less prominent role. Um, The Obama foreign policy, despite the Cairo speech, which promised so much, 
the actual uh, Obama administration's track record in the Middle East is one of disengagement. And that's how many of the powers in the Middle East would see it, certainly Saudi Arabia. Um, they, they look at the red line that was drawn in Syria, uh, which was subsequently crossed by the Syrian regime, and there was no response from the Obama administration. So I think there is a, a sense in which the U.S. has been absent in recent years. You say they've been absent in recent years, but the Obama administration might say, well, look, hang on, we've had been involved in nuclear negotiations with Iran. That's engagement. Just because we're not dropping bombs doesn't mean we're not engaged there. The Saudis, our friends and allies, the Saudis, we're helping them in their battle with al-Qaeda and Houthi rebels in Yemen. We're fully involved. Yes, I mean, it's exaggerated, uh, the perception that the US is less engaged, but it's a perception based on uh, comparison with uh, previous administrations. And perception is often reality in the Middle East and in many other places. So they're seen to be allowing, uh, in Iraq, they with, the, the uh, Saudis would argue they withdrew prematurely, handed Iraq over to the Iranians, have basically allowed the Russians and the Iranians to call the shots. The Saudis and some of our Gulf allies were apprehensive about the uh, nuclear deal with Iran, feeling that the West was being naive and that uh, Iran would continue secretly to pursue uh, nuclear weapons, even though we saw the nuclear deal as the possibility of a start in a different relationship with Iran, which is still to materialize. From the Saudi point of view, they were seeing America pivoting towards its adversary, who they are uh, opposed to in many different uh, areas of the Middle East. They would also, again, to play devil's advocate, uh, argue that you could say we were fully engaged 10 years ago when we sent troops to Iraq and we've been fully engaged by having troops in Afghanistan for 15 years now. Is that really a good thing? Uh, yeah, no, and uh, that, that's the rationale for President Obama to say the time is to get out, and I, I'm not arguing against that. Uh, I think uh, it was time to uh, hand over to the Afghans and to hand over to the Iraqis. But from a Middle Eastern point of view, who have, since the inception of uh, Saudi Arabia, for instance, um, you have had a strong American defense and security guarantee. That defense and security guarantee doesn't seem quite so strong now. And in response to the Arab Spring, they were critical of the speed with which the U.S. abandoned Mubarak. So the Arab Spring, um, for them, was a time of considerable um, insecurity and uncertainty. And I think the, um, some of the states of the Gulf will need reassurance that the, the U.S. and the West generally remain committed to their security. Were Hillary Clinton to, as expected, win November's election, do you think that she will show that support to America's uh, Gulf allies in the ways that you're suggesting, in a way that perhaps uh, they feel that President Obama hasn't? I think they're hoping that a Clinton administration would be a bit more forward-leaning on that, but I think they're also realistic and don't expect a return to the the halcyon days of a a strong U.S. guarantee. I think they would see a Clinton administration as more pragmatic, likely to stand up to the Russians and the Iranians in Syria. They would also be allies in the fight against uh, ISIS, but I don't think they would expect radical change. I think it would be the continuity of the Obama doctrine, if you can say there is an Obama doctrine, but with a bit more engagement, a bit more realism. 
You say uh, stand up to the Russians and, and Iranians in Syria, and um, forgive me, I'm not directing this in an accusatory way towards you, but I'm always slightly confused when people talk about that. What do they mean? Are they talking about taking military action against Russia inside Syria? Are they talking about, well, if there's a no-fly zone, we'll hit Russian jets? What does it actually mean to stand up in that phrase? Well, I think in the Clinton context, it means the possibility of having safe zones for the groups of civilians, for the allies of the West, if you like, the anti-Assad forces, providing them with safe zones and calling Russia's and Syrians bluff. So it's not looking for a confrontation with the Russians, but being prepared to back up what you say. That would maybe a difference between Clinton and Donald Trump. I know Donald Trump has said that this is a strategy for World War III, but his position on Syria is just as inconsistent. <laughs> he talks one minute from leaving, handing over Syria to the Islamic State, to bombing ISIS uh, and sending 30,000 more troops, or letting Putin win in Syria. So I would suggest the various pronouncements from Donald Trump have been all over the place. I think it's about if you do have a policy to support the opposition to Assad, either back it up or let events take their course in Syria and um, concentrate on defeating ISIS and allow Assad to continue to do what he's doing in Syria. Yeah, at the moment, we're between one and the other. George W. Bush, in his second inaugural speech, talked about America being a beacon of democracy, about lighting a fire of democracy across the Middle East, using Iraq as an example. Obviously, those words about democracy sort of fell away soon after the elections in Gaza when Hamas were elected there. Barack Obama has also talked about democracy and yet then has also ended up backing dictatorships in the region. Do you think that under President Clinton we're going to have a reversion to... The norm as has been for decades of we back our allies, whether they're dictatorships or democracies, or do you think that the push for democracy, for freedom as Bush termed it, is going to be given renewed vigour? I would expect not under Hillary Clinton. She's a realist. Uh, I think the naked push for democracy, and when we say democracy, we mean one person, one vote. Actually, democracy is much more complicated than that, and it's about having proper institutions, having a free press, and in many ways, it's about promoting these things over the longer term with the one person, one vote coming later. I think our interests are much better served, and the interests of the people in the Gulf, by a liberalised the current security state. You have a security state, you call them dictatorships, I uh, call it a security state, where uh, the stability is prioritised over a plebiscite. So I think there'll be more realism about that. I think some of the Gulf countries are making more progress than others, but this is a longer term issue. You only have to think about what the Middle East would look like if countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE were in the same state as Syria, Libya, or Egypt, where our interests really lie, and indeed where the interests of the people of the region really lie. And I think they themselves have seen that an election doesn't necessarily bring the sort of stability, freedom, and economic prosperity that they would like. So the Arab Spring, in many ways, has taken some of the shine off the campaign for democracy. That's not to say that it's not a, a long-term ambition. Sir William Patey, thank you very much indeed. 
You're listening to the global election here on Monocle 24. My guests now are Lina Khatib and Bill Law. Lina Khatib is the head of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House here in London. And Bill Law is a Middle East analyst, formerly of the BBC. Bill Law, perhaps if I can begin with you, can you point to any American involvement in the Middle East over the past 20 years and say, yes, that was a success? <laughs> wow. Now, that's a big question. I mean, I I have to think that the Iran deal is a qualified success. There are a lot of uh, critics of it, uh, certainly here as well as in America and elsewhere. But I do think in the general vacuum of Obama's uh, foreign policy approach to the Middle East, uh, that is the one bright ray of light. Uh, Who knows what will happen uh, when the presidential uh, election and the dust has settled uh, Donald Trump has said that it's the worst deal ever. And uh, if you go by what he says, uh, which I think we need to take with a grain of salt, uh, he may indeed uh, suggest he's going to tear up the deal, which would have, uh, I would think, catastrophic uh, implications. I think that Hillary Clinton, in some ways, is a steady hand. Uh, She's viewed as a hawk. I think that's probably a bit of simplistic uh, approach to her, but she is a known, a known known uh, to a certain extent, whereas Donald Trump is, a, is an unknown. He's a wild card, and who knows how the Middle East will play in his um, volatile imagination. Lina Khatib, when you look at what's happened under the Obama administration before that, the George W. Bush administration, are there things that you can look at there and go, actually, where America has been involved with a certain country where it's pushed for something, it's actually had a positive impact? Again, I agree with Bill here. I think the Iranian nuclear deal has been a great achievement for the Obama administration, even though it's a complicated issue and we haven't yet seen the full advantages of this deal. But, you know, it is something commendable. Apart from that, when you look at the portfolio of issues regarding the Middle East, starting with Israel-Palestine, There has been no progress. Illegal settlements keep being built. There is no peace process anymore. There is a stalemate that really needs breaking. And this administration tried very timidly to do that, but then seems to have given up. When you look at the Arab uprisings in the Middle East, the United States was very slow to embrace the uprisings. And at the same time, support for certain autocratic leaders, unfortunately, continues in the region. So we haven't really seen the Arab uh, Spring cause a change in uh, U.S. policy towards the better. We are seeing now, in addition to all this, the U.S. falling back to the formula of looking at security as a primary concern, sometimes at the expense of democracy. When it comes to conflicts, you know, the story is, again, very, very bleak. So I haven't seen anything that would tell me that this administration or the previous one actually uh, did more good than harm. Yeah, if I could just pick up, uh, Lena, the the Arab Spring, that was a missed opportunity, wasn't it? Because there was that moment where the Islamists stood back, indeed the Muslim Brotherhood, waited to see which way the wind was blowing before they jumped in. And sadly, uh, Obama hesitated, and that marks his whole approach to the Middle East, really, is hesitation. He hesitated. I was in, in Cairo shortly after the revolution, and uh, Hillary Clinton arrived uh, there to meet with some of the people who had been involved in, in achieving what at that point had been a, a peaceful revolution. And, and she met one of the uh, leaders, a woman who I 
hugely respect and who'd paid a significant price for her efforts against Mubarak. And Hillary Clinton said, thank you, uh, it, it's wonderful to meet you and congratulations on all you've achieved. And the reply was, well, it's nice to meet you, but where were you two months ago? I think that rather sums up uh, what happened there, a huge missed opportunity. As you said, the emphasis on security. So that meant that the Americans were backing up their allies in the Gulf, in particular Bahrain, where uh, the government has carried out a major repressive campaign against a a majority Shia population. The Americans have made some noises. uh, We here have made virtually no noise whatsoever. We look elsewhere through the region and see that had the Americans come through and spoken strongly and clearly at the beginning of the Arab Spring, we would have a different picture today. And yet, Lena, if you talk to people in government in Saudi Arabia, for example, or any of the other kingdoms or um, autocratic states where the leader has remained the same, they'll say actually the opposite. They'll say, look, America abandoned us. We see what they did with Mubarak. They didn't stand behind him. We feel as if uh, America hasn't been on our side. It, it, It seems as if the US managed to annoy pretty much everyone. Well, I think the Gulf countries, for example, um, and here we have to distinguish which Gulf country we're talking about. So, for example, if you're talking about Egypt, yes, Saudi Arabia did not warm to the removal of Mubarak, whereas Qatar was happy that uh, at the time President Morsi was elected president because he was from the Muslim Brotherhood that has close ties to Qatar. So that's kind of um, something we have to bear in mind, that Gulf countries don't all have the same views regarding the United States states and uh, even regarding who is in charge in the Middle East. Each state seems to have its own allies and clients in different places. But that aside, at the moment, we do have consensus amongst Gulf countries on one thing, which is, yes, as you mentioned, that the U.S. has let them down. But this is more to do with the Syria file than anything else. The nuclear deal with Iran was something that Gulf countries did not like, apart from Oman, because Oman actually played a role in brokering the deal in the first place. It was kind of a behind-the-scenes space for meetings that helped the deal come through. But when it comes to the Syrian issue, Gulf countries are very disappointed that the U.S. rhetoric indicated that the U.S. wanted the Bashar al-Assad regime to go and that the U.S. was supportive of the Syrian opposition, but that U.S. action regarding the Syrian conflict did actually uh, neither of those things. Support for the opposition has been minimal and the Bashar al-Assad regime um, is still there. And so Gulf countries feel that the United States indeed has let them down. But here we can talk about the next president, Gulf countries, primarily Saudi Arabia, believe that if Hillary Clinton were to become president of the United States, then this might help them restore their relations with the United States because they see Clinton as taking a more kind of harder line on Iran than Obama has, which would bring her more in line with the kind of Saudi view. So they think that perhaps a Clinton presidency might improve relations between the Gulf and the U.S., Bill, I just want to bring you in on on this issue of Syria and what happens next once there is a, a new president. Hillary Clinton has made it clear, sort of publicly uh, during the debates, but sort of mainly in briefings, that she would have taken a a far, for want of a better phrase, firmer or tougher line in Syria than Barack Obama. What do you think that would actually mean in practice were she to become president? 
Well, very interesting question. I think that the time for that tougher action has probably passed us by. I think that the elephant in the room here is Putin and the way in which he's been able to play the Syrian card to enhance Russia's influence and indeed promote Iran in the region. So what we've got now in Syria is at Tartus, the uh, the Russians have uh, a very sophisticated uh, anti-aircraft system that has a huge range. They have effectively created a no-fly zone, and Putin has made it clear that if American or British planes attempted to interfere with uh, Russian planes, then uh, they would be shot down. I think no one wants to uh, push the envelope that far, and I think that there is a fear that Putin could indeed react very strongly. I don't know that she has very many options to play in Syria, other than the one that indeed Putin has been pushing, which is that uh, Assad is going to come to the negotiating table. He will be part of the discussion if there's going to be a peaceful solution. The situation in Syria is one that uh, Obama leaves as a massive legacy deficit. As Lena said, he had an opportunity. He hesitated. The red line was crossed. He did nothing about it. And uh, Syria is paying a huge price for that. And I think that uh, in terms of uh, American foreign policy in Syria, I don't see that she's got uh, many options. She's talked of a no-fly zone. It isn't going to happen. The Russians have got their own no-fly zone, and they've made it clear whose planes are going to be allowed into that zone. So I think she's, uh, she's short on options in Syria. Other parts of the region, I think she could play a more engaged, uh, in a more engaged way, rather, than Barack Obama, and that could yield some dividends. I think there are opportunities, as Lena said, there are opportunities to develop and draw on the Iran uh, nuclear deal. Lena, I, I just want to talk to you a little bit about Syria and what Obama and his administration could have done differently. Because it's very easy for us to say now, well, look, you know, maybe you should have armed the rebels or there is, maybe they could have imposed a no-fly zone earlier on. But this is also a president that came into office saying, I'm going to end this war in Iraq. I'm going to bring our troops out of Afghanistan. He got persuaded to get involved with Libya, but wasn't 100% sure on it and then felt that he was let down by the Brits and the French who had taken the lead and then sort of walked away. So when it came to Syria, he was in a bit more of a bind than many people perhaps sort of admit now, wasn't he? Well, the, you're giving him, I think, uh, a bit too much sympathy for my liking. <laughs> when it comes to Libya, yes, indeed, he feels he was let down. However, to blame the failure in Libya on Britain and France makes it look like the US is completely innocent in this, and it's not. It basically did not have a plan to stabilize Libya following the military intervention. And this responsibility should be shared by the US and its allies in Europe. It cannot just say, oh, you know, we, we did our part of the deal and the rest did not deliver. And yes, this failure did influence Obama's take on Syria, but this is a second problem, which is that the Middle East and North Africa is not one harmonious region. As I was just saying earlier, different Gulf countries have different outlooks. The dynamics in each country in the region differ. So just because something worked or did not work in a particular country doesn't mean that the same model should or should not be applied in the second country. Obama's biggest mistake is not looking at Syria as Syria. 
He just looked at it as a potential conflict in the Middle East to be dealt with kind of a general way without really understanding the nuances on the ground. I think that President Obama was very reactive in the way he handled the Syrian file. At every stage in the crisis, he could have done things that he did not do. The first one could have been stronger diplomacy, which did not happen. The red line that he said should not be crossed and then was crossed and then he threatened military action that did not happen hurt the credibility of the US not just in the eyes of its allies and in the eyes of Syrians but even in the eyes of Bashar al-Assad who stopped taking any rhetorical threat from the United States seriously. And then we have the opposition. It was only armed enough to keep them as a player in the conflict but not to allow them to actually change the uh, dynamics on the ground in their favor. The Obama administration wrongly believed that in keeping a kind of uh, balance in terms of the power of the regime and the power of the opposition militarily, then this could push all sides to the negotiating table. But what they should understand is that when we talk about the word stalemate, which I now hate using because it implies or invokes this image of nothing happening, static, the stalemate that they imagine is going on in Syria from the perspective of Syrians actually means being bombed every single day and being killed every single day. And so when you're in that kind of situation, you will not be motivated to go to the negotiating table because you're still involved in this conflict that is brutal. You still feel a sense of grievance. So the US just did not make an effort to understand what the conflict actually is like on the ground and did not display world leadership qualities. And this, of course, made the door wide open for Russia to come in and become a key player in this conflict. Bill Law, there's a broader problem I think it's going to come up over the coming years when we talk about America and the Middle East, in that we're all talking about what we think America should do, what involvement they should have, how they should do this. And yet for many Americans, not those involved in foreign policy decisions, but many ordinary American voters, their initial question is, well, hang on, why should we be involved at all? Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? One of the things about this presidential campaign is the emergence of a of a new nativism that Donald Trump has really uh, etched his brand on. And uh, Americans often want to disengage. And indeed, they look at the Middle East and say, why should we be involved? Why should we care? Trump is playing that card very heavily. It's dangerous, though, because the Middle East remains an absolute cauldron. And even though the American public may want to disengage, the reality is that America sells huge amounts of weaponry to uh, the Middle East. Saudi Arabia is the largest purchaser of American weaponry in the world. We here and in America do a lot of business with the Middle East. They're important players. There's a long-standing relationship. You can't simply just walk away from that. I mean, Barack Obama did create a diplomatic uh, vacuum, but remember, there is still a huge military boot print in the region, and that will continue. Americans are very much involved in the Mosul campaign. There are special ops forces there who are guiding and, and leading the various militias that are beginning to liberate Mosul. America is using lots of drones. I mean, under Obama, the number of drones that are being used on kill missions has escalated dramatically. Under Obama, special ops budgets have almost tripled to $11 billion. 
under Obama, there are now 70,000 special ops people in the field. So that kind of warfare, which quite frankly appeals to Hillary Clinton, because we all remember the look on her face when Osama bin Laden got taken out. That's the sort of warfare that I think covert warfare, they call it the gray zone, that she will engage in in places. Now, perhaps that's the kind of game she will begin to play in Syria. I think eh, that's a very dangerous game there. But you're seeing it happening in Iraq. The American public, they want to disengage. The reality is that politically, diplomatically, militarily, America needs to be involved. And just finally, Lena, let's assume that Hillary Clinton is going to win as dangerous as that is to do right now. Everyone's crossing fingers or touching wood. But let's assume that she is the next president of the United States. Do you think that in some ways we might have a mix of Bush and a mix of Obama, a president that is engaged, involved, uses diplomacy where she thinks it's necessary, but it also isn't afraid to use military might? I think we just have to qualify what military might means. I don't think after the legacy of the uh, Iraq invasion of 2003, that any US president will want to commit boots on the ground anywhere in the world. I think Hillary Clinton is definitely prepared to try to have a no-fly zone, even if, you know, as Bill reminded us, to actually implement this will be very, very difficult because of Russia. But I don't think she will go further than, you know, remote, let's put it this way, military involvement by the United States. Okay, we'll leave it there. Lena Khatib and Bill Law, thank you both very much for joining us on the global election. And that is it from the global election. We will be back for one final programme after the election, though. And if you want, you can be in the audience. On Tuesday, the 15th of November, I'll be hosting a debate here at Monocle's offices in London on what the election of President Clinton or President Trump means for the rest of the world. I'll be joined by Stephen Erlinger, the New York Times London bureau chief, by Bill Emmett, the former editor-in-chief of The Economist, and Zania Wickett, the head of the US programme at Chatham House. You can buy your tickets now from monocle.com. And if you can't make it, you can hear the resulting show here. It will be available from the 16th of November. The Global Election was produced by Rhys James. It was researched by Bill Lutey and edited by Alex Funnell. I'm Steve Bloomfield. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.